Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you're around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one. No questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on breaking the status quo of failed solutions and to get to the core of the supply chain of deadly fentanyl. Learn more about FAF by visiting familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello, everyone, and I am once again energized to share another enlightening High Truths conversation with you. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. The question I pose for you today is, do we still have a war on drugs? Or perhaps we should just get over it and allow drugs to freely flow into our country with no limits. DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, made headlines when they seized more than 2,200 pounds of methamphetamines in October 2021, the largest haul in the agency's history for methamphetamines. But that was not the largest drug seizure of all. Back in 2005, 13.8 tons of cocaine was interdicted on its way to the United States, and that was the largest seizure in the world in a single operation in a single day. How do you feel when you hear about news about a drug bust? Are you happy for the seizure? Um, that's much less drugs available for, for abuse. Or do you feel sad for the dealer? Or perhaps you feel defeated, like what's the difference anyway? Drug exchange can be violent. People say marijuana is just a plant, it's organic, it's healthy, but those plants are protected with machine guns and weapons. Other natural plants, organic tomatoes, for example, don't need machine guns. Marijuana is not a victimless drug. In September 2020, just outside San Diego in Riverside County, seven people were shot and murdered in an illegal marijuana grow. Deputies found hundreds of marijuana plants and a thousand pounds of processed marijuana valued at more than $5 million. This was from a professional crime cartel. All victims were Laotian and the mystery remains on what cartel was involved. Who fights the supply of drugs? The DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. The DEA was established in 1973, merging other agencies into a single agency tasked with the drug control activities. What do you think about investment in reducing the supply of drugs? How important is the role of law enforcement in our drug crisis? I like to use the infectious disease model, as you know. 
in order to eradicate malaria, we needed to get rid of the swamps. Sure, we developed medications that treated and prevented malaria, but getting rid of the swamps helped get rid of the disease. Remember the Zika virus? Getting a mosquito bite while pregnant meant risk of having a baby born without a brain, anencephaly, pretty horrific. The treatment was mosquito control. People say we can't police our way or arrest our way out of the drug crisis. Maybe true, but I also don't think we can treat our way out of the drug crisis. Of course, treatment is important, but it's not the ultimate solution. It takes a balanced approach. The opioid prescription epidemic is a model. We ended this problem by decreasing the supply of prescription opioids, not just by increasing Suboxone treatment. So supply matters, it matters a lot, and we'll never have less kids using drugs when we increase the supply and access to marijuana. We won't have less fentanyl and methamphetamine when our supply chain grows. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. My name is Ray Sweeney. I'm a chief of police out here in La Mesa, California. And you know, over the last 20 plus years that I've been doing this job, I've seen a dramatic change in the way that law enforcement uh, enforces and interacts with the uh, drug use on the street, from the legalization of marijuana to the decriminalization of some of the major drugs that has happened across California and other states nationally. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about your podcast, The High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, because it really affects us on a local level, and I'm sure it does on the national level. That's why my, my question for the DEA is, you know, we've seen an increase in drug use and supply here locally in the streets. And with the decriminalization, that's made it more challenging for law enforcement to address those issues on the street. And I'm wondering if it's had any impact with the DEA, and if so, what are you doing to address that? Thank you. Chief McSweeney, thank you so much for your question, and thank you for the service and keeping our community safe. To answer your question, I invited someone who is very much an expert in law enforcement and drug control, the previous acting administrator of DEA, Utam Dillon. Utam Dillon headed the DEA where he led a workforce of 15,000 people and oversaw a budget of 3.2 million. Mr. Dillon came to his position in DEA from being the director of Interpol Washington, where he acted as a US official representative to the International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, the world's largest police organization and its 194 member countries. Mr. Dillon has a legal background and served as counsel to the president, associate deputy attorney general, and as a federal prosecutor. In 2006, Mr. Dillon was unanimously confirmed by the United States Senate as the first director of the Office of Counter-Narcotics Enforcement at the Department of Homeland Security. He has significant congressional experience for the House Financial Services Committee, the House Select Committee on Homeland Security, and the House Committee on Government Reform and Oversight. He works in consulting and serves on various advisory boards. You can find Mr. Utam Dillon's bio on the High Truth show notes. Utam Dillon, welcome to High Truths. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. I'm very excited to have you here. And I don't know if you recall, um, we sat uh, at table apart at a CADCA event in DC, and I approached you about DEA Take Back Day. I was uh -huh. very excited 
I was, I was very excited about my genius idea to take back vaping products during a vaping epidemic that preceded COVID. And I don't know if you remember that. Um, well, I absolutely do. And I think you'll probably, uh, you probably also know that that uh, shortly thereafter, we announced that we were taking back vaping products for the very first time. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, yeah, sometimes you get like great ideas and, and uh, that's the beautiful thing about you know, working in DC when you have, when that happens, it goes nationwide to share. So, yeah, well, I appreciate that. That made a big difference. Getting those uh, vaping products uh, is making those part of the take back day was an important part of that take back day. And so for, for this uh, episode, we have a call from um, and question from chief uh, Sweeney. He's chief of police in La Mesa, California. He was asking, what is DA doing about the increased supply and increased use, especially now with the pandemic, uh, as well as the whole decriminalization of drug use that makes the problem much worse? Well, so I left DEA in May of uh, 2020, but I can tell you that based upon my experience as the acting administrator uh, of uh, DEA, uh, I know that the uh, agents in the field offices are continuing to work very hard to uh, ensure that drugs and drug traffickers are taken off the streets of America. That mission hasn't changed, that mission continues. With respect to decriminalization, um, you have to remember that a, a jurisdiction that may change its laws with respect to drugs, that's fine with respect to the state or county or city law, whatever law is being changed, but those laws will remain the same uh, under federal law. And so DEA will continue to prosecute uh, individuals who are engaging in illegal drug trafficking in violation of federal law. And it doesn't necessarily ma matter what the state laws are with respect to that. And that's that's important uh, differentiation, which keeps people in, in localities kind of confused because they don't know what's it can what. be confusing, it, 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 especially uh, in states where, you know, um, uh, certain uh, drugs could be legalized. But under federal law, they're still illegal. Um, but uh, but. Under federal law, DEA can investigate and seek the prosecution of individuals who are you know, trafficking in those illegal drugs, regardless of the legal status in, in the locality um, where those drugs are. So let's talk a little bit about like the whole philosophy of drugs. Do we still have this war on drugs? Well, the phrase war on drugs has gotten a, 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 you know, a bad rap because people imagine that at some point you win a war and it, it's over. But what I would tell people is, you know, we we haven't stopped prosecuting uh, bank robbery cases. Uh, I was a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles in the 90s, and the very first case I got was a bank robbery case. And we've been seeing bank robbery cases since there have been banks for hundreds and hundreds of years. If we had called it a war on bank robbery from the very first day, well, we would have lost that war because people still mm -hmm. rob banks. So we really have to think of this as just an ongoing criminal activity that's a part of society and that's going to continue. Our job, our goal is to push down as much of that as possible, to, to, to reduce it to the bare minimum uh, that, we, uh, the, that we can. And we do that by seizing uh, as many drugs as we can, getting those drugs off the street. We do that by arresting the drug traffickers and prosecuting them. And we do that by seeking the highest sentences possible for drug traffickers to create a disincentive for others to engage in that trafficking and to get the drug traffickers off the street. That's our goal. You know, hearing you say that makes me think of something exactly along those lines, medically related. We had a war on cancer and a battle of cancer and, and somebody who lost their battle 
or won their battle. And that's really unfair to people who have cancer. Because then we'll, just like you said, we'll always lose. Somebody will always lose. And so I think we're coming away from calling that a battle um, on, on cancer and medical issues. And I think the same analogy goes for, for drugs, hearing you say that. The other common thing that we hear is um, we can't arrest our way out of using drugs. And um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, that's kind of a, 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 a similar to the war on drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't you can't win that war. Uh, the answer is that attacking the drug problem in the United States requires a, a, a global kind of approach. You need prevention, treatment, and enforcement. Um, you're not going to win this battle with uh, uh, prevention only, with treatment only, or enforcement only. You have to bring all three of those together to attack the problem. Um, but enforcement is a critical part of that because enforcement goes after supply. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've learned in the opioid crisis is that supply matters. And the best example I can give you is everyone's heard the story about that small town in West Virginia where, where uh, prescription opioids flooded this town and suddenly uh, the, the uh, addiction rates went way up. Well, they went up because they had supply. They had those opioids available to them. Uh, that's the best evidence, I think, that supply really does make a difference. So what DEA does and what all law enforcement does is they attack the supply problem. They attack the drugs, the drug traffickers bringing drugs into our country. They take the drugs off the street and they reduce supply. So it's absolutely critical that you have that law enforcement component. And I would also say that one of the things we need to think about is is how much we're how many resources we're giving our law enforcement. If you just think of one cartel, one Mexican drug cartel literally makes billions of dollars a year. DEA's budget when I left was only a few billion dollars, three billion, I think, uh, per year. That may sound like a lot, but DEA has a global law enforcement mission. It's in countries throughout the world. And so it needs the resources and other law enforcement needs the resources to aggressively attack this problem. And and you're you're so right. The other people who who say that Sam Quinones, who is on High Truths, uh, talked about in his new book, The Least of Us, how supply matters. It matters a lot. And you give a perfect example for that. I actually think that the opioid prescription um, epidemic is over, and it was over by by managing the supply. It wasn't. It's not over by prescribing our way with buprenorphine out of it, um, right? So yeah, I think that that's the- a perfect example. Absolutely. One of the things that that I was I'm, I'm, I'm proud occurred when I was the acting administrator is we actually saw overdose deaths go down mm-hmm. briefly for the first time in decades. And part of the reason for that was that um, DEA working with HHS and others helped to educate doctors about just simply over prescribing. And when we saw those prescription rates drop by uh, fairly significant amounts, we saw drug overdose deaths drop as a result of uh, prescription opioids drop. So the answer is, when you reduce supply, you really, you really will see a tangible benefit. And we have the proof of that. That occurred just a few years ago. Right. And to defend the medical community, I would say that prescribing was pushed on us. You know, if we didn't prescribe, we were not considered compassionate. Laws were passed um, that, you know, about um, the pain as a right, pain as a fifth vital signs. And and there was a period of time where if you didn't prescribe and didn't give opioids, you were considered a bad doctor. Then yeah. things change. And it's always hard to re-educate anything. Um, um, well, I was told the doctors just in medical school, this is not something you're necessarily taught. And so that was one of the issues. 
Um, but the I, I, I think it's also really important for doctors not to underprescribe. I mean, um, opioids, if, if, if a patient needs it, uh, it's a, and the doctor thinks the patient needs it, there shouldn't be a hesitation to providing a necessary medication. This is overprescribing, not, and we don't want, when I was the um, acting administrator, one of the things I never wanted was to know that somebody was suffering needlessly because a doctor feared prescribing because they feared repercussions. That was something that always worried me, and I think it's really important to find that. It's a hard balance, but it's a balance we have to find together. I, I agree. I call it Goldilocks prescribing, not too much, not too little. It has to be just right. And um, and frankly, government should be out of the business of the doctor patient relationship because that interference caused the opioid prescription epidemic in the first place. Laws were passed that that pushed prescribing that um, took away triplicate prescriptions that opened the door and took out the speed bumps for prescribing anything to anybody for any condition. Mm-hmm. Um and then we suffered the consequences of that. Um, there are organizations, though, that that have a, a different philosophy about um, drugs. Um, for example, the Drug Policy Alliance is an organization that strives to normalize drugs, a philosophy I, I don't agree with. But they've called for dismantling the DEA, a waste of time, uh, mass incarceration, abuse of authority, blocking research, other you know pretty dramatic things. Um, I'm sure you've faced this type of criticism. What's your response? Look, right now we're facing an overdose crisis like we've never experienced before. Last year, we lost over 100,000 Americans to drug poisoning. Um, DEA's mission is now more critical than ever. Those drug poisonings are almost largely the result of Mexican drug trafficking organizations pouring their illegal drugs into the United States. The only law enforcement agency that can effectively go against those drug trafficking organizations is the Drug Enforcement Administration. The notion of dismantling DEA now would guarantee that those drug trafficking organizations will not just continue to poison our citizens, but will will poison even more every single year. It'll also guarantee that these drug trafficking organizations, which are already global, will truly become global criminal organizations capable of doing enormous damage to not just the United States, but to the rest of the world. Honestly, DEA is the only law enforcement organization in the world standing between those uh, global drug trafficking organizations and uh, the safety and security of our citizens. Wow. Um, So I guess if you believe in freedom of using drugs um, and freedom of cartels, you'd agree with the, you know, the DPA. But if you want to protect the brain of youth, decreasing addiction um, and and protecting our country, really, then you'd be in favor of decreasing the supply of drugs and supporting the DEA. Absolutely. Um, I mean, again, think the way I look at it is we've lost we're losing 100,000 Americans a year. And that's directly you can draw a direct line from those drug overdoses to these drug cartels in Mexico. I mean, they're killing our citizens at an alarming rate. We can't disarm ourselves now. We need to actually increase our law enforcement efforts uh, to uh, more aggressively attack these organizations. You know, I agree. And, 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 and talking about this during a pandemic where this little invisible virus is killing people um, here's something that's killing Actually, more, more people die of fentanyl than COVID in age 18 to 45. Um, and we're not treating that as aggressively 
um, and as we should um, as COVID. Um, what about, you mentioned about supply. Where are drugs coming from? Are they coming from China, Mexico, Canada? What, where, where are the efforts uh, that need to be made? Yeah, so largely most of the illegal drugs entering the U.S. are coming from Mexican drug trafficking organizations, organizations like the Sinaloa cartel, for example. Um, they get their drugs from a variety of places. So we often, we're talking about fentanyl, mostly because the vast majority of drug overdose deaths are uh, related to fentanyl now. But let's not forget, uh, these cartels are also uh, uh, bringing heroin into the country. Cocaine, cocaine is still killing a lot of Americans. Methamphetamine, just a few years ago, meth was really killing more folks. It still is killing a lot of Americans. These drug trafficking organizations are bringing all of these drugs from Mexico into the United States. They receive uh, what they call precursor chemicals. Those are the chemicals they use to manufacture methamphetamine and fentanyl in Mexico. They receive a majority of those chemicals from China, some from India and some from other countries. So they're able to take those chemicals, create these synthetic drugs in Mexico, and then transport those drugs across the border into the United States. And so what are we doing about those precursors? Are we going to India and China where, uh, to block it at that end before it gets to Mexico and get assembled? Sure. During the previous administration, um, I worked to uh, with with uh, the uh, drug czar, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, and actually Jim went to Carroll. China. Jim Carroll, that's Our right. Friend. Yeah. And actually went to China to uh, talk to the Chinese law enforcement about the precursor chemicals. Uh, Jim Carroll did too. And we were largely effective uh, in that the Chinese recognized that there was a problem with uh, these uh, 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 precursor chemicals coming into the United States and into Mexico. However, the chemicals continue to flow through illegal sources from China and from other countries, including India. So the answer is there needs to be very, very strong and continuous diplomacy with those countries and law enforcement efforts with those countries to, to stop the chemicals from ever leaving those countries and getting into Mexico or any place else where they're manufacturing these drugs. Those efforts were continuing uh, under the Trump administration and they need to continue very much under the Biden administration. And, and do you know if they are continuing now? I can't say that they are. Um, I, I would just say based upon what we're seeing today, uh, the amount of drugs entering the country mm. every day, almost every day there's an article about a new, very large seizure. Just a few years ago, the amount of fentanyl that was being seized at the border was just minuscule. I mean, it really was a very small amount. Yeah. Now it's massive compared to that. And so just based upon that evidence, evidence of seizures is good because it tells us we're taking more drugs off the street. Every drug yeah. we take off the street saves a life. Um, but what it also tells us is since we always only get just a portion of the drugs, that if those numbers go up, the seizure numbers go up, the amount of drugs coming into the country are actually larger. So just based on that evidence, I would say that um, that uh, China, India, and other countries that should be working with us to keep the, the precursor chemicals from going to the Mexican drug cartels, that that, that is not being effective. You know, you, you make a good point that we're, we just catch a small amount, just what we catch, we, it tells us what what's, what's coming in. Do you have an estimate of the percentage? What percentage do we catch? Um, that to give us an estimate of the global amount that's in so our So it's, it's impossible to, to know what we don't know. Yeah. Um, 
I would say right now it's really hard to estimate that because um, you don't have, so drugs enter the country uh, through ports of entry and they also enter between ports of entry. And that's like in some places that's the desert or that's across a river or something like that between the US and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So normally you have border patrol agents, for example, between the ports of entry, you have customs and border protection at the port, ports of entry. Right now, because border patrol is, is dealing with so many um, uh, immigrants coming from Mexico, the between the ports of entry are often unguarded. And so uh, my best guess is that we're probably seeing a lot more drugs coming up between the ports of entry than we did just a year or so ago. Uh, and of course, we're still seeing an enormous amount of drugs coming through the port of entry. So the, the bottom line is the whole the whole system is, is sort of breaking down to allow drug traffickers to bring drugs uh, through in a number of different ways uh, where it's become easier to do so. And sadly, we're suffering the consequences of that um, and seeing that in, in our morgues. That's very sad. Um, what are some of the creative ways you've encountered in, in the way people smuggle drugs? Like I, I was amused, I guess I shouldn't say amused, but um, but a pictures of burritos with fentanyl in them that were smuggled across. Yeah, I mean, look, drug traffickers are amazingly creative. Uh, it, 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 let's not forget that they're a criminal enterprise with literally billions of dollars to work with. So they have the time and the capability to develop all sorts of technology, uh, complex and, and, and uh, very simple. So through ports of entry, the, the way they want to get the drugs through is in a vehicle. Um, and so you'll see things like batteries that are uh, where, where only half the battery is actually a battery and the other half is a storage container for drugs. So that if somebody were to test the battery, you would still get a charge off of it. It would still look like a battery and, and that sort of thing, but you could put drugs in it. Um, within tires, within all parts of a vehicle, building, building things to look like part of a vehicle, but aren't. Um, Customs and Border Protection detects that by putting those vehicles through an x-ray, but they, they don't have enough of those machines to do that. And it's actually a very labor intensive job. You need somebody who's an expert at this, who can look at an x-ray of a vehicle and see an anomaly, pick that out and figure out where the drugs are. Um, we need to develop technologies that can do that more efficiently, artificial intelligence and the like that can pick up that information. We also need the ability to pretty much scan every single vehicle coming into the US. If we had the ability to scan every vehicle this way coming into the US and an artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, capability to see the anomalies in a vehicle, we would be able to decrease the amount of drugs entering the country by a fairly significant amount. Yeah, it's amazing we don't do that more often. I did tour um, the the border entry at Baltimore when I was in D.C. and got to see the the, the CAT scans in the vehicles, and it's like behind door number three, this car has <laughs> packages, and and they do they use they don't screen every car. They have artificial intelligence, and they look at the inventory and something that doesn't seem right. They 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 um, X rays or CAT scan those. Um, which is interesting, but you're right. You don't, you can't, and you do that in, in U.S. post offices and, and boats and other, you know, just like you said, a lot of their creative way. Well, very close to where you're at is the, is the port of entry. Um, it's just in San Ysidro. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the busiest ports of entry in the country. And um, it is, it is just not possible for them to maintain commerce and all of that. 
to to scan every vehicle in the mm-hmm. way we described. And so yeah. th- that's where the Customs and Border Protection officers need to use their instincts and their training to identify individuals who are bringing drugs across the border um, to put them into secondary so they can do a more thorough inspection. But that's, again, a very, uh, unfortunately, very hit and miss. Um, drug trafficking organizations recognize that they're going to lose a certain amount of drugs crossing the border. So they're doing business. <laughs> so they send they'll, they'll send, let's say they'll send five vehicles across the border with fentanyl hidden in a secret compartment and know that they'll lose one of them. That's fine. They're going to make so much money mm-hmm. off of the four vehicles that got through that the amount of money they're losing uh, uh, on the one individual, the one vehicle that gets caught is de minimis. Yeah. And and their um, their creativity is not just in how to smuggle, but also how to make new drugs, right? And there's a whole movement that that um, you'll you'll tell us about now about moving to synthetic drugs versus agricultural and, and various creative ways in, in making those chemicals. Right. So this is a huge danger for us, and we saw this with methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is a synthetic drug. It's manufactured uh, by drug cartels in Mexico. When I was the uh, acting administrator, I had the opportunity to visit. Uh, a meth so-called super lab uh, in Sinaloa. And it was quite amazing. I mean, they flew us in a helicopter uh, to the middle of a jungle where this lab was manufacturing methamphetamine, by the way, polluting the environment because these drug uh, traffickers couldn't care less. There was a a small river nearby that was obviously being polluted (laughs) as they poured the chemicals in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, they have the ability to manufacture these without worrying about the growing cycle. So you know, heroin is a is a product of a crop that you have to grow and water and tend to. You have to uh, cultivate it, then you have to you know cut it down. You have to process it. There's a cycle to that. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. It takes time. Methamphetamine and fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, doesn't require any of that. You manufacture that in a laboratory. So the cycle isn't months. It's it's weeks to get that done. And so the danger is. It really is uh, the traffickers can manufacture and distribute an infinite supply as much as they're only limited by their their manufacturing facilities. Uh, And I think what we're seeing now is the drug traffickers moving away from uh, heroin because it's just really more expensive and more subject to the vagaries of a crop and to fentanyl because it is simply more powerful, more potent. Less of it gives you... uh, Uh, creates a a higher, uh, has higher potency and therefore less of it is more profitable. Yeah. Why, why wait for your crops to come and and agriculture when you could just make it in a little lab that you could move around also? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So as far as synthetics, so there's, you know, we're talking about, you know, fentanyl is synthetic drug and and the methamphetamine is synthetic. There's also synthetic um, marijuana spice that's uh, illegal federally, but also uh, other ways of like the Delta eights and nines that are coming in there is, is, is that under anybody's radar? Yeah, absolutely. It, and I, I think if I understand you correctly, when we talk about synthetic marijuana, it's not really marijuana. It's just another kind of a drug that, that, that is uh, called marijuana or synthetic like marijuana. Like spice or K2, where, yeah. where, where the core chemical of it is like the cannabis um, yeah. molecule, but then they they change it around. Right, right. Just like the fentanyl analogs are are, are made differently and, and, the, and, the, and, and the cannabis uh, molecule is made differently. Absolutely. When I was at DEA, we were definitely focusing on that and uh, focusing on, uh, there's also, um, we're, 
that's part of the extraction process where uh, THC is extracted from marijuana, which by the way, can be very dangerous. People blow themselves up. They create a lot of, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a toxic environment and that sort of thing, but yes. And, and people die from that high yes. concentration. Right? Yeah. Right. People don't, you know, one of the things that people don't fully appreciate is that, that, you know, um, marijuana naturally doesn't have THC that high, but, but people have been now changing that so that the THC levels are going up and up. And then when people extract that and then put it in a very high concentration, nobody's ever tested that on human beings. And so it, 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 the results are, it's a very dangerous thing to do. I would urge people not to do that. Um, I, I think I see, I see the test results because they come to the emergency department. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good. In one of our episodes with Libby Stute, who's a psychiatrist in Colorado, she very eloquently says that the the high potency, the very high potency THC uh, is more like methamphetamine. It acts, people behave in that way rather than, than what people think of, um, uh, of marijuana. It's really critical that we do that, that, that there be research on that because I think people think because it's THC and extracted from marijuana, it's safe, but it's, it's just, it's such high potency. Um, we just don't know what it's going to do to people. And I think I've seen studies showing at least some damage, some brain damage to young, young people who Absolutely. use, use Absolutely. high potency. Yeah. And increased addiction and, and, and associations with uh, psychosis that can become yeah. permanent. Yeah. Um, the marijuana plant that not only just affects people's brain, it's affecting our lands. Um, and just there's huge amounts of um, uh, public lands that are being used by these cartels um, to grow marijuana, poisoning our land, poisoning endangered species. It's estimated that the the amount of money to clean that up is more than cleaning up an oil spill. And I'm, later on, um, I will have a podcast with um, an ecologist who will talk to us about that. But is DEA um, working on protecting our public lands from from this kind of in, in, yeah. you know contamination? Certainly when I was the administrator, uh, we were, I assume that continues. I will say I had the opportunity to visit one of these illegal grows in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're talking about here is drug cartels will take over a piece of land, uh, you know, national forest or a state forest in a very remote area. They'll find a location. Oftentimes it's very slopey and mountainous um, where they have access to water and they will grow uh, marijuana uh, and they will use um fertilizers that are actually illegal or banned in the United States. Uh, they will, they will get illegal fertilizers. Pesticides. Were, pardon me? Pesticides. Yes. I mean, basically yeah. what they're doing is, is these are, these are, uh, 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 uh and pesticides. You're correct. Fertilizers mm-hmm. and pesticides mm-hmm. that are illegal in the U S and they'll poison our environment. Uh, they'll poison our water supply. Uh, they're also stealing water. So water up in, you know, in the in California has always has water issues. So, you know, up in the mountains where the water is coming from, they'll divert enormous amounts of water to feed marijuana plants. Marijuana plants actually require a tremendous amount of water. So they're taking water to feed the plants. They're poisoning the environment. Um, animals that eat the this marijuana become th- th- those pesticides and fertilizers and the like get into their system. So anybody who was actually maybe hunting those would and and eating eating them afterwards would discover that they're actually eating all of these things that are banned in the US but they're being brought illegally here so these illegal grows uh are really terrible for the environment uh and it's one of the things that DEA was focusing on but it's something that people need to understand is happening this is 
this is not without cost. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about drug scheduling. I'm a physician. Every three years I pay DEA $731 for the privilege of prescribing medications. And um, can you talk a little bit about um, rescheduling certain medications. So for example, gabapentin is not on the schedule. And yet when I review medical examiner data of what people die from, that's high on the list. So look, there's, there's a whole process for that. Uh, uh, DEA works with HHS. And so there is a process for scheduling um, that requires, you know, scheduling is done based upon a review of the, of the, of uh, uh, particular drug, and that's not done by DEA, that's done by uh, by others um, at, at, at HHS. Um, and then once they've made their, drawn their conclusion, for example, something that's in schedule one, which means there's no, no medical use, if they draw a conclusion that a particular drug fits into that um, category, then they make a recommendation and there's a, a whole regulatory process to make that happen. But when it comes to scheduling, there's something else I'd like to mention. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something called emergency scheduling, where DEA can decide uh, on its own to emergency to put something on the schedule of drugs uh, of illegal drugs on an emergency basis. And DEA did that several years ago uh, with with uh, with respect to fentanyl analogs. Now, fentanyl analogs, as you know, but let me just say for your audience, are mm -hmm. are fentanyl-like drugs. They're they're drugs that are like fentanyl, but something in them has been slightly molecularly changed. So they're not exactly fentanyl. And the scheduling works based on the molecular structure of the drug. So if you create an analog that gives you the same effect as fentanyl, but it's not covered by the schedule, then it's harder for us to prosecute drug traffickers trafficking in that analog. So a few years ago, DEA saw that drug traffickers were making these analogs because they were trying to uh, evade um, prosecution. And so DEA emergency scheduled those analogs. Um, and that scheduling expired several years ago. And since then, Congress has been doing temporary rescheduling of uh, these analogs. That's going to expire, I believe, February 18th. Oh, and, and so this is a big deal. Uh, and I'm surprised that Congress hasn't been able to just do the emergency scheduling given the fentanyl crisis, the overdose crisis we're facing today. But I think it's just important to recognize that if these fentanyl analogs are not scheduled, permanently scheduled. Drug trafficking organizations will be able will be able to create these analogs, and it will be much much harder to prosecute drug traffickers who traffic in fent these fentanyl analogs. Which basically is going to mean that we will be flooded with fentanyl analogs, and we'll have it'll be very difficult, if not impossible, to prosecute the individuals. Uh, killing our citizens with these drugs. So emergency scheduling um, is only done by Congress. DEA cannot act on that alone. No, DEA has emergency scheduling authority, which I believe goes for two years. But mm -hmm. once that period is, is ended, it's not DEA cannot redo it. Congress mm -hmm. has to do it. So the, the regulatory scheme is it's an emergency. DEA can use its emergency, this emergency authority that it's been given to do mm -hmm. the, the temporary scheduling. And during that period of time, then, if the drugs need to be permanently scheduled, you can go through the normal process of scheduling them and getting them on during the two years, or Congress could act to schedule them. But you have to remember, scheduling a single drug can take itself years. And so, and, and every, if, if you require uh, the, the federal government to go through the process of scheduling every single analog, 
that means going through the whole testing process that we have to go through. And the, it, it, all the traffickers have to do every time we schedule something is change it a little bit again. And then we have to go through a process that will take potentially, if not months, years to do. That's why the permanent scheduling is so critical because that just takes the ability of the traffickers to change the drug uh, and to avoid scheduling, takes it completely out of the picture. Um, and I'm hoping that Congress will act to permanently schedule on February, uh, before the deadline of February 18th. And that's to uh, to do all the analogs, all the federal all the analogs, analogs, yes. Would just be every, it, uh, I think the, the legislation is a little different from, you know, it, it, it's changed from time to time. But the bottom line is this, fentanyl and any of its analogs would be scheduled. Right. And um, and I, I don't know if there's any of those fentanyls that um, say have a medicinal value that they wouldn't want to be in scheduled one and keep them as a schedule two, like fentanyl is. Right, exactly. And look, there's a process. That's been one of the concerns. If you schedule everything, are you taking out a potential useful drug? The answer is, remember, DEA does authorize research on schedule one drugs. So mm -hmm. if uh, if a a pharmaceutical company or a university doing research decided that this particular fentanyl analog had some potential medical value, they would simply um, apply to DEA so that they can do research on that schedule one drug. And if they can demonstrate that it does have some useful purpose, then you know you go through the normal process and it gets scheduled into an appropriate place, schedule two or schedule three or wherever. Right, And but at this point in time, 2022 with 100,000, People dying, you know, a whole airplane a day of people dying from drugs. I, I don't see the benefit of of keeping those doors open. I think we need to close the doors and then make exceptions instead of the other way around. You're absolutely right. It would be, I, I, I'm trying to search for the right word, crazy to yeah. to uh, let, to, to like, let the uh, the scheduling expire. It would be yeah. truly a disaster. Yeah, devastating. Yeah. Um, what about because so we're talking about scheduling? There's a whole controversy about like should marijuana be on the schedule? Should be legalized federally? If if any of those things happen, um, uh, whether it becomes legalized on a federal level or scheduled on a uh, on a federal level, how how would that change what DEA does and approach to marijuana? Well, if if there was a decision to change the scheduling, it would no longer be. Uh, a schedule one drug, so that would change the you know how it's enforced. It would be if it was moved to schedule two, for example, then it would be like fentanyl, as we've talked about, which has a, a useful medical purpose. If, so, if somebody finds that marijuana does have that, um, so that would change how it's dealt with. Um, one of the things that I mentioned though is I was talking about uh, the illegal grow uh, in California. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've seen, and policymakers need to very seriously consider and think about, is as states have legalized marijuana and, and states do it in various forms, sometimes for just for medicinal, sometimes for recreational, there's a lot of, there's a whole patchwork of ways states have done this. Mm -hmm. By doing that, they've also created a very um, uh, lucrative black market for marijuana. So almost every state where it's been legalized in some form or another um, has a, a, a taxing scheme for marijuana and that sort of thing. Not surprisingly, the, um, the drug traffickers use the ability to now grow marijuana more freely in those states because it's legal, but they don't go through any of the process of paying taxes and business licenses and that sort of thing. And the end result is their marijuana is cheaper than legal marijuana. 
and so you see in places like Colorado, where marijuana has been legal for uh, quite some time, thriving black markets, thriving criminal enterprises engaging in uh, the illegal marijuana trade. Uh, and that's something that policymakers need to think about. And I feel like as people talk about what we do with marijuana, people don't talk about the fact that legalization has actually created this very, um, this very uh, uh, large uh, market of illegal marijuana to evade all the regulations that relate to legal marijuana. That's just one issue that people need to think about as they think about the marijuana issue. Right. And that happened with, you know, um, cigarettes, right? With the fake, fake, you know, unregulated cigarettes. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives to this day still, you know, tracks um, illegal cigarettes that are not, that don't have, that haven't been taxed properly, don't have the tax stamp on Mm -hmm. because, you know, that obviously the tax is is an additional cost and people are looking for, you know, on the black market want to get something cheaper. So yes, you see that with all sorts of products, regulated products like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important that you have a regulatory scheme that can deal with that. Uh, right now, we don't. And what we see, and I think in places like California, uh, the, the the so-called legal uh, distributors are complaining bitterly about being completely undercut by by not only the extraordinary regulation that that exists and the, and the hurdles for them to do business, but also the black market is just totally undercutting them in California. Right. And so they're asking for tax breaks. Um, which is also weird because there's so many other businesses who aren't, who are not, not getting the breaks and why would marijuana get a break? It's, it's an interesting <laughs> dynamic. Um, let's talk about DEA and, and doctors. How do doctors get in trouble with the DEA? Well, um, there's a couple of ways doctors can get in trouble with the DEA. What we, what I mostly saw was uh, doctors that were uh, over-prescribing. And we, we talked a little bit about over-prescribing earlier, but I want to be really clear about this because um, I think doctors have a sense of a high sense of paranoia about uh, DEA um, uh, and uh, prescribing practices. I never saw a doctor uh, that was brought. So th- there's a whole process in DEA. If uh uh, if a, a doctor, a doctors have to, be, they're called registrants. You have to register with DEA, as you know, to, to be able to prescribe these. Um, these I'm prescriptions. one of them. Yeah, I'm You're on your list. <laughs> yes. And so um, uh, what we would see, and, and as the acting, any administrator or an acting administrator is the final arbiter of whether to, uh, how, how a doctor's uh, regist- registration should be treated, whether it should be um, taken away, whether it should be suspended, that sort of thing. Um, if they've engaged in some sort of activity that's inconsistent with their registration. Uh, what I saw were doctors who, where they were just very clear cases of, uh, of abuse, of overprescribing, of engaging in illegal activity, of basically selling prescriptions and that sort of thing. That's what DEA uh, was focused on when I was there. Uh, we wanted to be sure that we were getting rid of the truly bad apples, the ones who were literally using their, their medical degrees and their registrations to, to be drug traffickers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's different from a doctor who might be working at a pain clinic who has to uh, prescribe a lot of, of uh, painkillers, opioids, because all of his or her patients are in pain. And so that doctor would have a, a much higher uh, per- percentage of those kinds of prescriptions than maybe your average general practitioner, but that doctor wouldn't have to worry about 
you know, being under DEA's radar, because as long as they're following their normal practices and procedures, they would be fine. So DEA is not looking at, when I was there, DEA was certainly not looking at, you know, regular doctors engaging in regular, in their regular practices. We were looking for the bad apples who were engaged in genuine criminal activity. Right. The dirty doctors who make the rest of us look bad. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but the the other thing uh, I know you did with ONDCP and previous administrations getting rid of the X waiver and allowing people to prescribe buprenorphine. I, I was there and really lobbied. I said, this is, we, we had a new pandemic of COVID. We didn't know what we're doing. We didn't need to sit and take eight hours of education to treat people um, with this virus, but yet um, treating people with addiction had all these barriers. And, you know, you know, you got rid of that Biden inspection put that back in, took away the education. But to this day, right now, I still have to register with the government before treating somebody with addiction. I don't have to register with the government to treat somebody with COVID. Um, is that how how's a DA approaching the X waiver? So when I was there, the, the goal was to make it as easy as possible for people to get the treatment they need. So there is a balance because the drugs that they're that are being prescribed are controlled substances. People can become addicted to those. Those can be misused. But I, in my view, creating an environment where doctors and patients, doctors and patients make the decisions together and doctors have the ability to judge the patient and then to prescribe what the patient needs in a situation where a patient is um, addicted and the doctor is helping the patient get off of addiction getting the government as much out of that as possible is absolutely critical. Uh, and, and if we're moving away from that, I hope that that, that will change and we'll move back toward that. Uh, that's, it's just, if somebody is in addiction and I'm not an addiction expert, I'm the, I'm a law enforcement guy. So I, I this, I, I'm now speaking a little bit out of my, my realm more in your realm than mine, but my understanding is if somebody is in that environment, if they're in addiction, if they're addicted, and they're communicating with a healthcare professional. The last thing you want to do is to say, "Well, let me get back to you in a week. Let me. You need to be able to treat that patient in real time, uh, as quickly and efficiently as possible." And so, my goal was, and and it would always be my goal to ensure that 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 no government entity is in, is getting in the way of that, especially since people often have to go through treatment more than once. So you just want to make it as efficient and effective as possible. Do you know of physicians who got in trouble with DA for prescribing um, buprenorphine? Has that ever happened? I can't tell you that I know of, okay. of that occurring. Yeah, it's, I'm not saying it didn't. I just it's not a it's not something that I can recall. It's just interesting that you know I can give morphine and Vicodin, oxycodone, and and um, fentanyl without uh, registering with the government extra. Um, but I do if I prescribe buprenorphine. It's a little backwards. It's. Definitely something that needs to be addressed. <laughs> um, and we're talking about other ways of doctors getting in trouble. Uh, I have to, uh, I guess, I don't laugh, sarcastically laugh, um, that if I say the word ivermectin, which is, you know, a not uh, approved treatment for COVID, but if I say some anything about that, you know, I could lose my license and be sanctioned. But if I, I can recommend marijuana to, for almost any disease process, and, and that's okay. Um, do doctors get in trouble for recommending or prescribing uh, marijuana that's considered to be a scheduled one drug. By the way, I want to make sure that people know that I can write a prescription legally without getting in trouble for Marinol, which is THC or Epidiolox, which is CBD. That's gone through FDA 
processing, but for, I'm talking about the plant that they sell in dispensaries. Have physicians gotten in trouble for that? Well, so I'm going to answer that with two different answers. One is I never saw that when I was at DEA, but it's also important to recognize something. DEA focuses on large scale drug trafficking organizations. Okay. So when it comes to marijuana, DEA is focusing on, for example, the drug grow we talked about, something that would be, that could only exist in a national forest uh, because a large scale drug trafficking organization has the resources and the ability to do that. Um, that's what DEA's focus is. And the reason DEA is the one focusing focuses in that manner is because it's difficult for local law enforcement, for example, to conduct an investigation that might take them to a Mexican cartel or all the way to, to uh, Colombia, for example, for cocaine, or might take them from California to New York. DEA is a, a, a national law enforcement agency, an international law enforcement agency. And so those resources are spent focused on large scale, global, or international drug trafficking organizations. So when you talk about, you know, marijuana and, you know, people often imagine the DEA is focused on some sort of you know, somebody selling marijuana on the street or whatever. That is not what DEA does. Yeah. You're, you've got, you, you're at the higher end of, uh, of the global market, not on the, the micro end. Correct. Um, let's talk about some grand solutions to, to, um, to the drug problem, especially fentanyl. Um, you and I both serve on the advisory board for Families Against Fentanyl. And, um, and thank you, um, Families Against Fentanyl, for sponsoring this podcast and fighting a very important cause for decreasing the deadly supply of fentanyl that's poisoning and killing our citizens. And one of the goals for Families Against Fentanyl is, again, going on the macro level, uh, like you mentioned, by declaring fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Can you explain that? Why, why is that important? What would that do? What, what would that take? Well, um, that could be via executive order of the president, simply declaring that fentanyl is a weapon of mass destruction and directing federal law enforcement um, uh, components, entities, agencies to atta attack fentanyl trafficking in a coordinated way. Um, it's important for a few reasons. First, it would send a very strong message to the drug cartels that we believe that killing tens of thousands of our citizens every year with fentanyl is in fact uh, a weapon. We are in fact viewing it as a weapon of mass destruction. And we are viewing you as purveyors of that weapon of mass destruction. Um, it would co help coordinate resources like DOD resources, Department of Defense, ensure that Homeland Security and DOJ and the Department of State, they all have resources that focus on counter drug efforts. The president could order that they be brought together to more cohesively and effectively attack drug trafficking in Mexico and throughout the world. So it, it would have a very positive effect, both in terms of sending a very strong message, uh, as well as a practical effort in terms of bringing together those uh, those uh, government entities that could more effectively attack drug traffickers that are bringing fentanyl into the United States. And how how so? You, one of the ways to accomplish that is for an executive order. Is there other ways to to get that done? Um, you, you, sure. Uh, you know, Congress could act. Uh, Congress mm -hmm. could do it through a resolution, for example. A House or the Senate could the House or the Senate could pass a resolution. Uh, there could be legislation. There are there are a number of ways of doing this, but. 
um, yeah, I think I think the the goal of Families Against Fentanyl is to raise that profile and get that energy directed at attacking the fentanyl problem. It is it is a desire for a recognition of the number of people that are dying every single day from these fentanyl overdoses, and a recognition that the that the the large amount of, of fentanyl that's killing these folks, the majority of it that's killing these folks, is coming from these Mexican drug trafficking organizations, and we need to we need to acknowledge that, and we need to aggressively uh, attack these organizations. Jim Rowell, who who started Families Against Fentanyl, lost his son Tommy, and he was able to trace the fentanyl that his son bought to China, and suing um, the organization from China. Um, that uh, that killed his son, and uh, it, would that be easier if if fentanyl was declared a weapon of mass destru- destruction? Um, I, I don't know that would um, I don't know how that would impact you know uh, litigation, but I think that again it would it would send an important message to the Chinese also to the Indians who are you know sending precursor chemicals to these drug trafficking organizations that the U.S. is viewing fentanyl in a much different way. Uh, a weapon of mass destruction is uh, something that is capable of killing you know, many people at one time. Fentanyl's doing that and every single day. Right, right. So, like we said, it, more than COVID, it meets that right. definition, right? So so if we, if, we, if we look at the number of people that die every day, the number of people that are dying every year from fentanyl, if that was anything else, we would, I think this country would be going absolutely crazy over it. Yet, we just don't seem to be as focused on it. We almost, I hate to say, and I hope this isn't true, are we beginning to accept this? I pray that we're not, but I think it's just critical for, for, the, for everybody in government to make this point. And, and what, what, what Families Against Fentanyl is seeking is that declaration, that declaration of war against fentanyl. Uh, and it, it's a, it, it can be done through an executive order by the president. And that's that I think would be a very important uh, next step uh, as we fight these drug cartels. Yeah. If anybody is listening and, and wants to join that effort, they can uh, uh, sign the petition that Families Against Fentanyl has on their on their website. Um, and maybe the problem is that I don't know if it is, is that, well, OK, you want fentanyl to be a weapon of mass destruction. That sounds more like a nuclear war kind of, you know, a, a effort or some uranium that should be a weapon of mass destruction. How is fentanyl different and, and why fentanyl and not methamphetamine or cocaine or, or other drugs? Well, I, right now, fentanyl um, is, is t- just taking more lives. I mean, more people are dying from opioid overdoses than anything else. But look, uh, as a former uh, DEA administrator, let me tell you, I'm, you know, methamphetamine worries me too. Meth kills people a bit more slowly, but it kills an awful lot of people in this country. And so does cocaine. When I was a prosecutor in the 90s, cocaine was the big thing. Crack cocaine is what we were going after. We were focused on the on the um, the cartels in South America that were that were growing and distributing cocaine. It's still killing a lot of people. We can't lose sight of any of these drugs and the fact that all of them are part of criminal enterprises that are poisoning our citizens, killing our citizens, all to make money. That's what this is all about. All it's about for them is profit. And we've got to we've got to come to grips with that. And we've got to treat them like they're treating us. We've got to go after them with the same vigor that they go after us and they go after dollars in this country. Right. That's very sad. Follow the money. And unfortunately, we are a a well-to-do country. And so that means that we have a bigger 
you know, more money to spend on drugs um, is, as well. Right. We're, the, we're so, the largest consumer of opioids in the world. Yeah, sadly. I, I want to share one project that um, that you've probably heard about, um, but I, I wanted to think of what can I do as a doctor to help with the with the fentanyl crisis. Um, I, can't, I mean, what, I'm not going to be able to create the weapon of mass destruction, which is you know really fighting the problem at its core. But how can the medical community be, be more involved and engaged in the issue? Is I think through data. That's how we operate as as um, as uh, as medical professionals, and we don't have that data. Most most hospitals across America, if they get a drug screen on a patient, they'll get the federal five, five drugs, uh, THC, PCP, amphetamines, um, um, and, and, and I don't know, I'm not thinking of those five right now, but it doesn't include fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's not included. Um, so I thought what I think we could do is make the federal five, the federal six and um, include that in drug screens. And so we have a very first law in that, that it's not a law, it's a bill in California, SB 862, Tyler's law, that will require all hospitals that if they do a drug screen for these other drugs, it should include fentanyl. That's a great idea. I guess I'm surprised that that's not already occurring. Um, and that would actually give us useful data uh, that I guess we're not getting, which is, you know, would help to supplement uh, our, our data about uh, fentanyl use in this country. So yeah. I, I, that's a great idea. Thank you. And I, I think Families Against Fentanyl will support that. I'm excited. It's my very first uh, time introducing anything like that. And I think it's more than data because that data translates to action, right? If you yeah. have a, a, a positive drug screen, uh, I, I like to say it, we could do contact tracing for overdoses, just like we do contact tracing for COVID or other infectious diseases. For every person who overdoses, there's other people who are affected. It's a teachable moaning moment if we don't know that, that that's what happened and show that that happened, you know, we can't act upon it. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm excited about that. Well, congratulations. Thanks. I, I want to ask you about your, your experience as the, the head of the DEA. I mean, what a remarkable experience. Um, uh, very large, high profile agency, toughest, you know, really tough challenges. Um, looking back at your time there, what was your like most rewarding? I want to ask you about your most rewarding and challenging experiences. Um, most rewarding, I think, were just was the opportunity to meet the the, the agents in the field who were doing um, their jobs. Um, I got to go to Afghanistan uh, to meet the agents there, and. Um, and, and personnel, not just agents. I mean, the, the analysts and others working there, and that that is a, a not was not the most um, uh, glamorous place to be. Uh, yet, I found people who were so dedicated to the job, who loved the mission so much, uh, who had done multiple tours there. It was it was just hugely rewarding to see their dedication to to working with the the, the law enforcement there to fight drug trafficking on a global scale. And I don't think people really imagine or think about the fact that you we've got people in all over the world uh, in places like that, uh, sacrificing uh, every day uh, to try to make America safe. So that was the, the best part of the job, meeting people like that. And, uh, and uh, challenging? The, well, the challenge, you know, when I first got there, what I discovered was that the number of agents had decreased over the last few years. So, you know, the agents are the ones that are making the cases 
uh, they're doing the rest, they're going undercover. And as, as agents go down, your ability to engage in effective law enforcement goes down. So our single biggest challenge was to get our agent numbers up. And with the help of a great team we had that I had at DEA, um, we were able to double the number of people going through the academy. So we were doubling the number of agents coming out. And we were actually finally, we finally started reversing the trend, the negative trend, and started just going into the positive trend of increasing agents. So that was a huge challenge. I'm going to guess that that remains a challenge today, um, just making sure that we have enough people out there um, to do to do the bread and butter work of DEA. Mm -hmm. And I'll kind of finally ask you about uh, looking at the problem that we have with drugs today, not a lot different, just worse than when you were at DEA. What direction should the agency be taking in today's drug climate? So I think right now the agency's biggest challenge is uh, Mexico. Um, our relationship with Mexico, uh, law enforcement relationship with Mexico, has unfortunately deteriorated quite a bit. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had an article um, out a few months ago where they described uh, our uh, relationship with Mexico as being the worst since um, uh, the assassination, the murder of Kiki Camarena by drug traffickers. Uh, Kiki Camarena was a, a, a DEA agent. The um, kidnapping and murder of, of uh, Agent Camarena in 1985. So think about that. It, if our if our relationship with with Mexico, our law enforcement relationship with Mexico, is 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 at its worst, uh, worse than it's been in decades, that means that DEA agents can't work in Mexico effectively. They can't work alongside Mexican law enforcement and, and the Mexican military to attack drug trafficking organizations, to collect the intelligence we need to prosecute drug traffickers. Uh, so I would say that the biggest challenge, that the, the the number one issue for DEA and frankly for the federal government overall, is to reestablish that uh, a solid law enforcement working relationship with Mexico, so the DEA can do its job there. Interesting. And final advice to Chief uh, Raymond Sweeney, who called in with a question, works hard on the ground to keep his community safe. Any any words of wisdom for him? Well, all I can tell you is I, 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 I it's a great I know it's a great team uh, in San Diego, a great DEA team in San Diego. Um, I know uh, I know at least one or two uh, uh, agents there who uh, work for me in Washington. Uh, you've got a great team there. Uh, partner with DEA, put those task forces together. Uh, you're a, he's in La Mesa, which means uh, he is actually going to see not just local uh, drug traffickers, but he's going to probably see drug traffickers moving drugs all the way from Mexico into, into the United States. So uh, he's dealing with both a local problem and, and an, uh, an international problem. So team with DEA and others uh, to fight that, uh, uh, those issues. And I, I'm, I'm confident that together you'll be able to, to succeed. Thank you. And I want to thank uh, Chief Sweeney, too. I very much thank you, uh, Chief Sweeney, for your service. I appreciate you keeping us safe in the emergency department, especially we actually call 911 from the emergency department a few times a month. Um, um, and you always make us a priority. So I really thank you for that. Thank you, Utam Dillon, for your prior service to our country in this fascinating uh, discussion. I appreciate your continued dedication on the issue of drugs. Supply matters, they matter a lot. We can't treat our way out of malaria. We needed to drain the swamps. And now we need to drain the swamp of supply of drugs that's entering our country and killing Americans. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign the petition to declare illegal fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Make drug dealers think twice and three times before peddling killer drugs. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.